0: this morning to Mark chapter 10. Uh, It's been a while since we've been in that book, amen, (laughs) right? Oh, come on, guys. We've been here a long time. You know that, Mark chapter 10. And someone asked me today, when are we going to finish up Mark? I can tell you, you better be here. uh, Thanksgiving weekend of this year. Have you made your plans yet? We are going to finish this book of Mark in November of this year, and uh, you have trekked with us through it, And I want to let you know, I pray it's a blessing to you because it is uh, going verse by verse through God's Word, looking at everything God's Word has to say. That's what it's about, is mining every verse for what it's worth. One more commercial while you're uh, turning there in your tablet, your smartphone, your Bible, or in your brain, uh, out afterwards in the sanctuary, we'll have these little Bible reading sheets. We're a week behind, admittedly. The new year has started. Uh, But some of you have asked for a Bible reading plan that's not too overwhelming and gives you some breathing room. Uh, This is a a five-day-a-week, Old and New Testament, chronological Bible reading plan. Uh, You read five days a week, and that gives you a couple days to catch up. And if you've started your Bible reading plan already this year and you're already behind, Jesus still loves you, okay? It's all right. It's good. Just get in the Word uh, because the more you're in the Word, the more you will share. Did you know that this last year, after 10 years of research, our Lifeway Research Company found that when people are in the Bible, they give more, they share more, they serve more, they're more humble, and they want to know more about Jesus. Wouldn't you know that? took 10 years to figure that out, but here we are. So if you want one of these, it'll be out in there, and we are starting tomorrow, Monday, January 7th, on week one. We're a week behind. If you're really type A and you have to read two weeks to catch up, praise God, right? But for the rest of us, you can catch up and be, you'll be just fine. That's out in the foyer. All right. Well, one week, uh, a Sunday school teacher had just finished letting and telling her kids about the Christmas story. And that's always a fun time, and, and, and the holidays are done. But after telling the story, the teacher asked, who do you think the most important woman in all the Bible is? And the little boy raised his hand, and he said, Eve. And the teacher said, we didn't talk about Eve. What are you you talking about? Why do you think Eve is the most important woman in all the Bible? And the boy, being smart, of course, responded, well, there are two names of the year after Eve. There's Christmas Eve and there's New Year's Eve. So therefore, she's the most important woman in all the Bible. Don't you love the mind of a child? God is good. But you know, so often that's how we spend and that's how we talk about Jesus Christ. We, we uh, come and, and we see these things this time of year because even this year, if you go on Amazon and you look this up, there are over 300 books from now until Easter that are going to be released with the name Jesus. But often, like that young boy, we misconstrue what that name actually means. And in fact, there are over 192,000 books with the name Jesus in them for sale on Amazon right now. But I can tell you, after looking at one page, they're all very much different, and most of them different from the Bible. Because we all have a view about Jesus, don't we? To the Muslims, Jesus is a prophet. To the Mormons, he is just a god. To the Jews, he's a rabbi. To everyone, it is just their own idea. To those who are hated, Jesus is seen as a prophet of love. To those who feel left out, Jesus is a radical inclusivist. To those who are sick, Jesus is a healer. To those who are poor, he's a provider. To those who are rich, Jesus is the ultimate mega billionaire without the lottery being won. To Thomas Jefferson, he saw him as one with Republican values. To Joel Osteen, all he sees are money signs. But one way you can tell what a person thinks about Jesus is how much and what they talk about Jesus and who He actually is. That's why I love Psalm one thirteen, and look on the screen and read this with me because it says, "Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high and who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth?" You see, the picture of Jesus that emerges from the Scripture doesn't fit any of the conclusions we just said. In fact. Jesus' message can never be separated from his death, his life, and his resurrection. In both his death, he died, and what he did is central to our message. And the Bible doesn't present a Jesus to be respected. In fact, the Bible says we're to have a Jesus to be worshipped, acknowledged, and followed with all of our life. Quite different than those examples. And in fact, Jesus' own ideas about himself weren't so vague that every people, and affinity group, could attach a meaning to it. Jesus' description of himself was so jarringly shocking that his disciples, as we'll see today, kept a little distance from him because he's, he's going this way, and we're, we don't want, we're not sure we want to go that way, Jesus. And that's a side note for you. Some of you may say, as you read through the Bible this time of how do we know these things are true? Do you want to know one of the greatest evidences we have for the Bible being true? is that the disciples look like idiots half the time, amen? That's good news for us, right? We would present them, if we were telling the truth, we would say they were A students, they were family men, they were great, they were awesome, they went to the best colleges, but the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible presents these guys in all their stupidity, because it was out of their own expectations they thought one way about Jesus, but he came a very different way. So is Jesus really the putty of our imagination? Is his identity in the eye of the beholder? Or who was he? Who is he? Or was he a young man who was cut down simply in the prime of his life? Well, this morning I want to look at that today because it's where we land in Mark, just three verses. But the big idea today is simply this. Jesus did not come to purchase your savability. He didn't come to purchase you because you were lovely. He came to take your names to the cross because you were unworthy. I was unworthy. And he marched those names out of the tomb. That is the Jesus of the Scriptures. The Jesus of the Scriptures cuts us down to size because it's at the foot of the cross we really see our true size. Before we can begin to see the cross as something good for us, we have to see it as something done by us. We were the ones across all span of time Jew, Gentile, Greek, whatever that put Jesus on that cross. And Satan not only tempts us to remember our sin, but to forget the cross. Isn't that so true? that when you think you have it all figured out, Satan comes along and says, yeah, you're right, you do. But the cross says that Jesus loves us so much that he had to die for us that we would be saved. And the nails didn't hold Jesus on that cross. His love for us certainly did. But one thing we know is that the world has quite a view of Jesus, but the Bible's view is quite different. And the disciples for the third time, if they didn't get it enough already, are going to hear that today. So today I want to look at four facts about the identity of Jesus this morning. Four words. We'll be looking through these verses. I want you to see Him as a teacher. I want you to see Him as the Son of God, the Savior, and our Lord. But friends, I want to remind you as we get through here. It's been a while. It's been about six or seven weeks that in Mark 10, Jesus has talked about divorce he's talked about kids, he's talked about riches, and he's talked about eternal life. And people say the Bible isn't practical. All of those are things in any group of people you'll be thinking about. But Jesus is focused. He is focused on one goal. These next eight months of our study are going to be focused on him going to the cross. We are seeing about five months of Jesus's life but in that time, he is focused like a runner at the tape at the end of an Olympic 100-meter dash. He's, he's dashing forward to the plan that has always been the plan that he would die, be buried, and rise again. And there's no greater bravery that has ever happened. And this Jesus is one that comes loud and clear from all these verses. He is on the road to Jerusalem. He doesn't care what stands in his way. He doesn't care who's 10 feet behind him. His focus is laser-like, and he's going to the cross. So we should admire him as he walks as bold as a lion into the will of God. And we should, without hesitation and delay, thank him as he does. Because, friends, this Jesus that we have, we should admire and adore him because if it were any one of us we would do the easiest way out and Jesus took the hardest way out and we can trust and follow him with every part of our lives. Will you join me in standing this morning as we read through just 3 verses Mark 10:32 through 34 as we start off this morning. Many of you all have this as a heading in your Bible. Some of you have this as part of another section, but I especially wanted to break this up today because I think it's very important to our context as we get back into Mark. Mark ten thirty two. hear the word of the Lord this morning. And they, who are they? That's Jesus and the disciples were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was, was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he, that's Jesus, began to tell them what was to happen to him. He said, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him, and after three days, he will rise again. It's Friday, but Sunday's a-coming. Praise God for that. Will you pray with me this morning as we start out our study this new year? Father, as we come before you, we are um, unworthy people. As Jacob prayed in Genesis 32, as we saw in Sunday school, we are unworthy people, unworthy of the blessings physically you've given us, the clothes, the food, the house, uh, the things that we have. But more so, Lord, we are unworthy people spiritually. There's nothing good that resides in us. We are sinners, rebels at heart. We are in enmity with you outside of Christ. But in your son, you loved us so much. You gave us these verses, not only just as a prophecy, but as a fulfillment of prophecy that at the most practical level of our hearts, that we know as Christians are true because we have repented and believed in Christ alone. Father, let our church this year stand on this banner forevermore that Christ was buried, risen again, and he died for our sins. Thank you so much. We pray this in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you, guys. Well, as we come up to this time, again, I want to look at these four things. And the first thing I want to look at, four identities about Jesus from this passage that teach us that he came to do these things, is I want you to notice that Jesus is a teacher here. Jesus was a master teacher, and it's not what this passage is about, but I think you'll see it laid out here. Uh, You know, many people think of him this way. You talk to the average person and ask them, what do you think about Jesus? They often say, well, he was a good teacher, and that's very true. But this teacher was on his way up to Jerusalem. They're they're down in the valley. They're down in Jericho, about 400 feet below sea level. Uh, If you've ever been to Death Valley before, and Lord of Maysville, I thought of you all. You all have been to this area before. This is way low in the ground. They're going up about 3,400 feet, which uh, 3,400 feet is in the, uh, Nancy, I thought of you guys this week, the the western side of Kansas, as you're going up into Colorado, that's about 3,400 feet, and they're walking and going. But Jesus is going at a blistering pace. And he's there and he's ready to move on. And this is the first time that Jerusalem has been mentioned in some time. Because, as you remember, Jesus has been out in the wilderness, he's been teaching in the villages, but now he's back to the, the thought of going to where he was. So the first thing I want you to see is Jesus teaches them by example. He kind of leads the way here. He 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 leads the way by example. And you notice this, that he leads it because he knows where he's going. He's the master teacher. He's going to show them where he's going. They're going to Jerusalem. They're not taking a detour. They're going into the hornet's nest. As uh, an expression I used in Sunday school, it's like walking into Berlin during World War II. It's just not something you just kind of do. You really got to have a purpose behind what you're doing. But I want you to see, if you go back to chapter 8, you'll just hold your spot. Go back to Mark 8.31 for just a second. Because this is not the first time that Jesus has told them what was going to happen. Mark 8.31, and we preached this back in the fall, uh, he says this. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. You'd think they'd get it. We'll go to Mark 9.31. Just one chapter over, same verse, Mark 9.31 and, and listen to the second time. For he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So go back to Mark 10. So Jesus is teaching them by example. He's not telling them and not doing anything that he hasn't already promised that he was going to do. He's leading the way into suffering and death. And friends, this is why we have to be very careful with our theology, what we believe. Because liberal people want to just take Jesus and make Him a good example, make Him a good teacher. But what encouragement is that? Because Christianity is the object of our faith. We know who that is. It's Jesus. But if our faith is just an example, can you imagine what it would have been for these people who, after Jesus... Would have looked at his life and said, Well, why did he go and do that? I don't want to die. That's stupid. But if there's actually a reason to go and give your life for Jesus because he said, Greater is he that lays down his life for his friends, there's a reason to go. Remember that Jesus was probably filled with dread, but he didn't refuse what was coming, he accepted it. He resolutely went towards the persecution, he was leading by example. He wanted them to know the truth and the freedom that came from following him. But notice, secondly, he, he, he does repetition. He teaches by repetition. Now, parents, you've never had to do this, right? You just tell them one time and they listen every single time. Or if you're a boss and your employee makes the same mistake five times and you've told them five times and they listen every single time, Nelson, you've never had to tell me how to run sound more than one time. I get it the first time every time. It, it, right. That's just the way it works. But he tells them every time what is going to happen. Isn't God so gracious? He didn't just spring it on them. He didn't just say, I'm going to die. He says, this is where we're going. This is how we're going to get there. But this is what I want you to do. And in Mark eight thirty one, we didn't read it. But when Jesus told them this the first time, do you remember what Peter did? He said, "Jesus, you're nuts, Get behind You're nuts. You're not going to die." And what did Jesus tell him? "Get thee behind me, Satan. Get out of here. Dude, Get out of my way. I'm going here. You want me to go here. Stop it." And in Mark 9:31, they were afraid to ask. But friends, this is why every Sunday, we gather to worship and rehearse the gospel to ourselves. We do it in our songs. Thank you, Tina and crew. We do it through our scripture reading. We do it in our prayers. Because every Sunday, like the disciples, we have to be reminded of the basic truths. The Chiefs made the playoffs. Did you know that? I bet you didn't know that at all. And they play next Saturday. I bet you really didn't know that at all. They're not playing on Sunday, so that's good because that means you'll all be here next Sunday, right? Amen. You'll come and you don't have to worry about a Chiefs game, blah, blah, blah. But you know the one thing they're going to talk about next week? It's not the better team. It's not the team with the most talent. It's not the team that's going to win that has all those things. It's the team that does the basics well, the fundamentals that are going to get them to the next level. The team that executes all those things in practice they've done time and time and time again that's going to get them to the next level. And friends, as a Christian, the greatest practice you can have to take your if you will, spiritual life to the next level, though there aren't levels, but take the analogy, is that you rehearse the gospel to yourself all the time. As a church, we do this all the time. We're going to do it here in just about 40 minutes when we take the Lord's Supper. We do it because we have a message that needs to be rehearsed over and over and over and over for our sanity that when you sin, when Satan throws those darts at you and you sink, you're such a big sinner that you've lost your salvation, you need to remind yourself that greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world, and nothing can separate you from the love of God. You need it for your clarity of life. That when you're ready to strangle someone in your life because they're so frustrating, that you need to be reminded, forgive as Jesus forgave you, is such as the gospel. Jesus taught them by repetition. He taught them by example, by repetition, but he also taught them, thirdly, by warning. Did you notice this? I mean, how could this encourage them? Hey, guys, I'm going to go down to Jerusalem, and oh, by the way, I'm going to be spit on, mocked, flogged, killed, handed over six times in different trials, three of the Jews, three of the Gentiles, and oh, by the way, I'm going to die. And if he just stopped there, it would be pretty depressing, wouldn't it? But he wanted to prepare them. To be forewarned is to be forearmed and have the expectations set. When he's condemned to death, they're going to be in shock. They're going to say, is this how it was supposed to be? But he tells them and he warns them this is what's going to happen. But he tells them that the silver lining is coming. And every blow of the enemy against Jesus also becomes a reinforcement for these disciples. And that's why he's the one that told them this because he's the only one that could do this friends, this is why I have have this Bible in my office. You want to come see it? I have the Positive Thinking Bible. It's literally called that. The Positive Thinking Bible. And and most of the Bible isn't in there. Actually, it's ripped out of there. Like, seriously. It's like the Thomas Jefferson Bible 2.0. And this is why as Scripture goes this year, as you read through this Bible plan or some other plan, you're going to read through parts of Scripture where you look at and you say, ooh, I don't like that. Did God really do that? Did God really say that? Really? Well, don't just read the sunny parts of the Bible. Read the whole thing. If you're not a Christian here today, I would challenge you have, you. have you read through what God's Word has said? Have you read through it in its entirety? Have you asked God, God, this is a hard spot, but but help me understand what this means for my life. Jesus warned them because He loved them. Parents, you love your children by warning them, hey, don't touch that stove. That's kind of the question in our house right now. Is the oven on or is the stovetop on? It doesn't really matter. Back away, bub. And that's how it goes. (laughs) Jesus is being far more than being nice here. He is telling them, guys, this is coming down the pike. Guys, this is what's going to be happening. Guys, this is how it's going to go down. Therefore, be ready. He loved them so much. But I want you to know something else. This is the longest point of, of of the three or four, but he discipled some of them. Did you notice that? Did you see what he did there in verse 33? He took them privately aside. You notice he does that more as he gets closer to the cross. But friends, he took the 12. He's playing favorites. And if you're an old believer here, old, whatever that means, 80's the new 50 or something like that. But whatever old is these days, if you've been in Jesus Christ for a number of years, and you're not investing in a new believer, you will soon become a stagnant believer of Jesus Christ. Jesus died. Invested in these people because he knew that without them, they would have nothing. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, imitate me. 1 Corinthians 11, follow me as I follow Christ. And these things you've heard in me, teach them to qualified men and women. Invest in a few for the sake of many. If you're here and you're saying, God, what do you want out of me this year? Maybe you need to be like Jesus. Maybe you are an old believer and you need to attach yourself to a young believer in our midst and say, look, I don't know you, you don't know me, we don't have a lot in common, but I want, I want to share what Jesus has done in my life. Would you be willing to do that? And young people, you need to be willing to accept that. Well, I don't need their advice. What do they know? <laughs> well, that might be true to some degree with your iPhone and your computer, but I guarantee on the other things of life, especially of the faith, those older folks are ready and willing and able. There's a man in our church, and he knows who he is. It's going to turn 80 in two weeks, and we might sing happy birthday from the pulpit to him, I'll just smile at him because he knows who he is. But I appreciate this man and others in our Sunday school class who who, who do pour into other young believers, who take the time, as Jesus did, not just to say, here it is, but to walk with them, to to be an example for them, to teach them, to warn them by repetition if necessary, because that is what it takes. So, friend, what is it that God is teaching you through this passage? Jesus is going to die. We know that. But have you been taught well enough by Christ that you're ready to go out? This passage isn't about how he taught, but it's about what he taught. Let's go on to number two. Jesus, not only you see him as a teacher here, but you also see him as the son of God. I love this. love this. Look back at verses 33 and 34. Notice what he says. He tells us very clearly. He says, see, verse 33, see, behold, maybe, we're going up to Jerusalem. And da, 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 da. Very specific here look, it doesn't say that a voice told Jesus. It doesn't say a vision told Jesus. It doesn't say a dream told Jesus. It said Jesus said this is how it would be. How do you know a fake Jesus from a real Jesus? The real Jesus just speaks it into existence and it is. And a fake Jesus has to maneuver around and say all sorts of creative things. But the biblical Jesus says it is and it was. Many of you are reading through Genesis right now, and this should mind blow you every time. God said, let it be, and it was. Wow. Not millions of years of evolution. He said, let it be, and boom, it was. When you became a believer, he said, you are mine, boom, and you were. What a God that is awesome. Our God says, this is how it's going to be. And Jesus taught them about the future with accuracy and ease. He knew, I mean, think about the Gospels. You remember the story after Jesus resurrected, how they had to pay a temple tax, and Jesus uh, uh, Jesus told them where the fish was going to be, and he told them how much money was in the fish? I mean, I don't know about you. Most of y'all can't even catch a bluegill with a worm right right by the dock to save your life. Amen? Amen? Oh, come on, guys. But Jesus said, here's the fish, here's where it's going to happen. He knew often in John 4 where a woman... How many times she had been married even before he ever met her and walked into that town. This Jesus, leading up to the Lord's Last Supper, told them where they'd find the donkey, what the owner would say, and what the man carrying a jar of water would say as well. It's amazing. Jesus speaks about every detail of our lives this way. Notice what he says here, and I'll go through these quickly. But only God knows the future because only God has foreordained the future. But here's what he says. He says in verse 33... He says he'll be delivered over, and that is a fulfillment of Isaiah 40. He says the scribes will reject him. Mark 14, this comes true. He says he'll be condemned to death. This will be done through Jewish councils three times over. And, and, And he goes on and says he'll be handed over to the Gentiles. That's Mark 14. Once again, he'll be done three trials over. But all of this comes true. It all comes true perfect accuracy. As Josh McDowell, the old uh, Christian apologist, and he is getting old age wise, he's almost 80, uh, evidence that demands a verdict, the, 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 the odds that Jesus would fulfill even half of these prophecies listed is like taking a coin, marking an X on it, throwing it somewhere in Texas, and then through the whole state of Texas, taking coins up to your ankles and filling every inch of land. And then asking one person with one try to find that coin in those bits of coins all around the state of Texas. Those are the odds that it would take for Jesus to fulfill every prophecy laid out here. That is our God. He's the Son of God. And what an awesome God He is. But Darren, Jesus never got justice. I mean, come on. I mean, it was it was a it was a sham of a trial at best, wasn't it? Friends, let me remind you that we can and we should work for better justice in our in our culture. We should. We really should work for better justice, but we will never get perfect justice in this world. Many of you have worked so long and hard to fight for reforms in our communities, for schools and for sidewalks and for great things, and and praise God for those things. But as a Christian, if Christ did not get that, then we, we can't entreat ourselves to earthly judges in that sense. It doesn't mean we should be anarchists. Please don't hear that. But, friends, if we should not be surprised as we were not surprised in 2015 when, when marriage was redefined in our country, even though God's words is completely different. We should not be surprised if laws go away in our nation that have a Christian backing over the years. This isn't a political statement. It's just our we trust not in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Jesus entrusted himself literally to the people who mocked him, spit him, flogged him, but at the end of the day, his justice was the God who vindicated him. And they said, "Kill him, get rid of him." What did he do? He did nothing. He was perfect. He was sinless. He—I mean, think about this. Have you ever seen a show where a criminal has kept their mind shut before a judge? What do they do? They get more than like a kid on on, on pop at eleven o'clock at night. They're like, and Jesus does this. First Peter says, "There was not a false word found in his mouth, and yet he was without sin." How do you stand before knowing you're innocent and not plead your innocence? Because he trusted himself to his father, not to those earthly judges. And my son will be saying that the rest of the day, I'm sure. so Amen. But it's true. Jesus knew as the Son of God that all things happen and all the details are fulfilled. He knows the future so much because He planned it and He's sovereign over it, and that is our God. Look, Calvary was not the plan B, guys, of the world. God did not get to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 of your Bible reading program and say, oh my goodness, what do I do? The plan was always for Jesus to come. The plan was always for Him to die for us, to be risen, to be mocked at, to be spit at, because only the Son of God could take our place. Only the Son of God. He has, no pur- he has no accidents. It's always with purpose. These were tragedies that Jesus was predicting, and there were no coincidences. It all happened according to his plan. Acts 4, 27 and 28 says this. It says, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, this is Peter speaking, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan, oh boy, Baptist church, there's that P word, predestined to take place. Look, we can, Dave, you said this in a class one day, Darren's going to, you said this in your sermon, Dave, because I listen to it on my iPad all the time. Uh, Dave, you don't know that, but that's the only uh, sermon I have on my iPad, and it's good, but you told us last April that I would solve this debate today, and that's not what I'm here to do, but this P word, predestinate, should not be a concern to you. If God knows all things, he should be able to play in all things. Do you agree with that? If God doesn't know all things, then friends, the cross was just a mere happenstance, but it wasn't. It was predestined to take place in, in Paul Peter's own words. What does this mean for you? Two things quickly. God is sovereign over every detail of your life, friend. You know that. You know that truth. But as you start a new year, the same worries that you had at midnight on December 31st are the same worries you carry into today, January 6th, perhaps. But God is sovereign over every detail of your life. He's sovereign over every detail of this church well, Darren, what about this? What about this? What about this? Great. Let's pray about it. Let's talk about it. Let's discuss it. Let's do it respectfully. But God knows every detail and he'll get us to the places we need to go. Second thing I want you to see is that your fears about the future, our fears about the future are rooted where those places, where our will differs from God's will. Did you ever think about that? When you have fear it's because you have not submitted to what God has told you perhaps to do in His Word or has instructed you to do through the counsel and direction of others in your life. Church, our fear as a church sometimes when we make decisions is rooted in what could be, not in what God has said to do, whatever that may be. And in Jesus being the Son of God, He shows us so clearly that this is where we are. Isn't that awesome? Isn't our God so good? Wouldn't it be great if you had everything figured out? No, it really wouldn't, because you wouldn't be trusting Him. You'd be trusting yourself. And I'm going to go to the next one, number three, for sake of time. Jesus is not only the teacher. He is the Son of God, and the short point here, He is the Savior. He's the Savior of the world. Did you notice that phrase He uses again? Look back at verse 33. He uses His favorite phrase. Jesus does, the Son of Man. Jesus is speaking third part person about Himself. I've told you before, don't go home and do that. So That would make your spouse or your friends act really weird around you. Why is He talking third person about Himself? But when Jesus does it, it has a purpose. It is to show the prophecy that He is coming as the humble servant, the Son of Man. He is the Son of God, but He's also the Savior. But it speaks to all that He would fulfill in the prophecy of Daniel 7, Isaiah 53, and so many other places. And friends, that's what it's all about is to know those things. It's important to know why He died, but it's also important to know that He did, and He came as the most humble servant, our Savior. And this is why the Lord's Supper is so central to everything we do, because the Lord's Supper reminds us that, that Jesus died for us, doesn't it? It reminds us that He gave His life for us. And you know, many liberal churches, and I use that word intentionally because they are, many liberal churches theologically They will shut the mouth of the preacher that preaches the Bible, but they'll keep doing the Lord's Supper. I want you to think about that for a second. The Lord's Supper is telling us that Jesus is the only way to heaven, but liberal churches believe that you can believe whatever you want to believe and get to heaven, even being a good person, even though the Bible doesn't say that. So why do they keep doing the Lord's Supper? Because the one thing you can't argue about Jesus is he told us that. He's going to die. He's the only Savior. You can shut the lips of preachers, but you can't shut the witness that comes when we gather together and take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation to the world that these Baptists drink a lot of grape juice. And they drink a lot, eat a lot of crackers. But they do it because they're proclaiming that Jesus Himself is the Savior, the Son of Man who came. And that is what it's all about. It's about Jesus being rejected so we can be redeemed. And that is why we come. John 10, Jesus said, no one can take my life from me, but I lay it down. And this is the command I receive from my Father. So why did Jesus come? He came so you would have eternal life. He came so you could live again. He came so you'd be saved from your sin. What are you saved from, Christian? Are you saved from bad decisions? Are you saved from from things? You are saved from God Himself. You are saved from the God who should take you and throw you into hell, but at the very time, He's reached out in love and gave His life for you. That's what you're saved from, literally God Himself. And God gave us that at the cross. That's why so many Christians refer to Good Friday around Easter time as Christians, as good, because even in the death, Christ is glorified. So why don't we share this? And I'm speaking... I don't hashtag me too because that has significance other than anything I've experienced, but me also. Hashtag me also. Why do I not share this as much as I should? When it comes to the gospel, many Christians like to click the like button. That's great. Woo! But we don't like to share it. You know, I posted this on social media the other day, and it was very interesting to watch the reaction. Several people liked it on Facebook, if you know what that means. And then within 20 minutes, they deliked it. No one shared it but three people. Is it about social media? No. But friends, this year would you pray you wouldn't be a fanboy of Jesus, but you would be a follower of Christ that whatever, wherever, whomever he calls you to that you would go and share that message with. We have a neighbor that is next to us. My wife and I always talk about we need to get together with them, get together with them, get together with them, get together with them. Pray this is the year we do that. And it's not her fault, it's more my fault, but me also. Would you pray that we share the gospel more and more and more at work, at home, even in the grocery store when you're in line? What else do you have to talk about? Talk about Jesus. Can't go wrong there. It's weird and awkward, Pastor. Yeah, it is. Preach every Sunday. It gets weird and awkward up here every Sunday too. But you love Jesus. Yes, I do, and you do too. Share him. Share him. Share him. One last thing, and I'll end with this. Jesus is not only the Savior. He's not only the Master Teacher. He's not only the Son of God, and I've got to hurry here, but Jesus is going to show us once and for all that He is the one who is coming back to be risen again. Amy, I know we're skipping some, but we'll go to number four. And I don't know what just happened with that, but you can throw them all up there, Amy. Uh, my, My PowerPoint skills are last year completely on that one. But He's the risen Lord. Did you notice what He said? He is risen Lord. Friends, let me say this clearly again. If you do not believe in the resurrection, you cannot be a Christian. Darren, I don't understand how it all happened. You know what? There is mystery, and we mentioned this last week. There are some mysteries to the Trinity. There are mysteries to how Jesus can be fully God and fully man. There's mysteries in the inspiration of Scripture and, and how some of those things came together, but we believe them because they are truth. Listen, you still love your spouse even though you don't completely have that person figured out. And the moment you say you do, you're already in the doghouse, so just stop it. We don't have to understand everything. We don't have a blind faith either. This is not saying, oh, just throw it to the wind. That Christianity is historical, it's archaeological, it it is prophetic, it is all those things. But friend, the greatest evidence that we have of anything in our Christian life is that our Savior rose again. And He's still alive. He's in heaven bearing the marks of the crucifixion, but He's still, as, as Romans 8 says, He's pleading for us. He's interceding for us. And we'll forevermore have those, those nail holes and everything else. What a great God He is. Here are ten things, ten, 10 reasons, and, and I, I just use these briefly, and I'll, you put them up and you can write them down. But ten results of the resurrection. You have a Savior. Just, just bask in these scriptures as I read them. A Savior who cannot die. We know, Romans 6, 9, that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. What does the resurrection provide? It provides repentance. God exalted Him at the right hand as our Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The resurrection allows you to turn back to God. 1 Peter 1, 3, the resurrection provides us new birth. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again by a living hope, to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection brings forgiveness, 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. The resurrection, in a sense, brought the power of the Spirit. This Jesus God raised up. Acts 2.32, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He's poured out this that you yourselves are now seeing and now hearing. The resurrection provides you no condemnation when you die. Who is it to condemn? Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, and who's indeed interceding for us. How about the Lord's personal protection I've always wondered what it would be like to have a bodyguard, and Nelson doesn't count, I'll tell you that much. What would it be like to have a bodyguard with you at all times, if you will? How about a spiritual one? The Lord's personal fellowship and protection, Matthew 28, 20. And behold, I am with you when you love me. I'm with you when you're living for me. I'm with you when you look pretty on church on a Sunday morning. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God's presence in our life isn't predicated on our success. It's on His promises and blessings. The resurrection, number eight, provides proof of coming judgment, Acts 17, 31. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness and has given us assurance to all by raising Him as Jesus from the dead. And praise God for number nine. You have salvation from the future wrath. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1:10. And we wait for the Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And Second Corinthians 4, our own resurrection. Second Corinthians four fourteen, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us into His presence. What an awesome God. Friend, what is your greatest fear? Your greatest fear should be the Lord your God. And that is what we know. Your greatest fear should be the Lord. That is what we have. But before we can begin to see the cross as something by us, we have to see it as something done by us. Something done for us, we have to see something done by us. Look, if you're here today and and you've got New Year's resolutions, can I give you another one if that's what you do? You will have fewer New Year's resolutions the more you exalt and lift up the gospel. Because your performance is going to fail. I'm going to ask you in a month, all right? We're going to ask how those New Year's resolutions are going. How many of y'all committed to a New Year's resolution? From eating more chocolate to exercising at the gym? Two hands? Diana and Judy? Really? That's all we have? You guys are amazing. That's awesome. You guys have already fulfilled all your New Year's resolutions, I think. But one resolution I want you to to give yourself to, or, or one thought, is, Lord, thank you for Jesus. Help me to love Him more. Help me to serve Him more. Help me to be like Him more. And Lord, help me to share Him wherever I go. Friends, if we do that as Christians, we're doing all right. We're doing just fine. And I praise God that these disciples didn't get it. Because there are times this year where you're going to go through something, you're going to forget these basic truths, and you need to go back to them. These disciples were amazed. Did you hear that? They were amazed. Why is He doing this? Why is He going through this? What is He doing? He's, He's so dumb. I mean, come on, Jesus, you're going to die. You're going to die. Go start a hut out here in the wilderness and let's make a church, man. We want you around. But God's plans frustrate ours so much. And friends, I pray this year that God frustrates our plans as a church, as families, or anything if it makes us cherish Jesus more, if that's what it takes. It In the life of Jacob, if I can close with this, Genesis 32. It took Jacob wrestling with the Lord himself and being physically impaired the rest of his life to finally realize that God was enough, and he is. We join me in prayer as we close out today. Father God, as we close out and get ready to partake of the Lord's Supper, it's a busy Sunday, Lord, but it's one worthwhile. We pray that you are lifted high and glorified.